Austin Oaks Church family, Pastor Brandon here on a, the long-awaited return to Left Unset. This is a podcast that's a supplemental study off of whatever um, wasn't communicated or preached on the previous Sunday. And as we are going through the book or letter of Revelation, um, <laughs> as it's kind of been now a little bit of the norm, um, there's just so much goodness in this letter that I can't feasibly get near through half the stuff that I've written down. And in fact, it's a little bit of a running joke um, that I have is like typically my my notes are anywhere between like 10 to 11 pages just on a normal Sunday. And so far, every Sunday with Revelation, my manuscript has been pushing over 20 so there's there's just a lot of material that I've just been digging up and just chewing on and processing through, um, and I and I trust that this sermon series has been encouraging for you that as you've been looking at Revelation through a different lens and potentially even a different light, um, especially as one of the things we've been saying. It's a little bit of a Eugene Peterson. He he kept saying this that Revelation isn't about prediction. It's about perception. It's about seeing things and like we actually see this multiple times in the letter where John was like and behold a door was open and look and see it's about seeing what is true and what is what was what is and what will be in the unseen realm and how it affects our present day and how it should shape our lives as followers of Jesus and so like this is not a letter of speculation trying to take revelation with us as we read the newspaper or you know even watch the news newspaper who reads a newspaper anymore but like it's not meant to try to figure out who the antichrist is and the beast and all these types of things it's really about discipleship how do we live faithfully in our present context in relation to what is true in the unseen realm and so that that's really the heartbeat of this message in fact uh this past sunday like just kind of started to talk a little bit about like what is like the one spiritual formation uh, practice or habit that we see in the letter of revelation and for all intents and purposes if we were just to summarize it it's worship it seems that um john was showing us that worship is probably the best way to make sure that our hearts stay loyal to Jesus while we live in our modern day, present day Babylon. Um, just as a quick reminder, um, this, this letter is written to a, to seven churches that are historical that were based in Asia minor, which is present day Turkey. These churches were under Roman rule, um, Roman oppression. Um, the, cult of worshiping Caesar as Lord was a big deal. Multiple gods, Zeus, Athena, it's, um, all sorts of pagan stuff there. In fact, like even if you wanted to have a positive or like a, a potential vocation in business or carpentry, any kind of trade, you had to be part of the guilds, which was kind of like, I don't know, we could say like maybe the Chamber of Commerce or um, the Knights Templar or something like that. Some kind of like group where you participate and some form of like worship of another deity. And in fact, these guilds, when they would gather together, they would um, kind of like do a toast to these gods and, and provide an, a sacrifice to the gods. And and then they would do about their business and then it would turn into a little bit of a soiree, um, a party, and all sorts of things would happen. And as a believer, do you, do you 
kind of like go with the flow for lack of better words just to make sure that you can make ends meet or do you stand alone and keep your loyalty and faithfulness to jesus and a lot of that was happening in these churches and they were losing their jobs a lot of persecution um, martyrdom all the types of things were happening there in this letter and so it's just like what would it be that god would give john to encourage the churches back then in there, those seven churches, but also like how would God encourage our hearts as a church as we become closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus? That's really in a lot of ways the heart of Revelation and what it's meant to do for a follower of Jesus. And so we kind of crafted um, the title of this message or the sermon series, Stirred, Not Shaken, a little cutesy, I know, I get it. Um, but the whole concept is there's like these seven churches needed to be stirred up. It seems um, if we right now we're like digging through the seven churches specifically this past Sunday, we were on church three Pergamum, but five out of the seven churches needed to be stirred up either in their affection for Jesus or to return back to good, solid doctrine and truth with the love that they have for Jesus. And there's two churches that we saw, Smyrna and we'll see in Philadelphia, that need to be stirred up to remain faithful, not because they're going off the beaten track, but it's just like, like for instance, Smyrna, their, their persecution is going to ratchet up. It's going to get harder. And so Jesus speaking to his churches in the midst of his churches was stirring them up. And so we've been asking this question for us as a church, what is it in our life individually, in our hearts? That needs to be stirred up what is it in our hearts or church life at austin oaks church do we need to be stirred up is it our um, love for jesus has that grown cold have we become more religious and more concerned about what we hold true and believe and tolerate and don't tolerate and we have lost the heart of it all or have we like kind of like bow down to um to loving all without holding on to truth um, and, and allowing false thinking and false beliefs and false um, false beliefs that lead to poor actions and poor practices within a church have has the church tolerated and allowed some of that has they has she compromised and so those are things that we as a church and we as individuals need to to wrestle with and so I wanted to just kind of do a quick reminder of why we we were talking about the significance of worship okay and why like it seems that worship is the sole spiritual practice that <laughs> that like god wants us to focus on when we look at revelation and i find it fascinating especially for churches that are under extreme persecution and and, and struggles churches that are growing cold in their affection to jesus or churches that are abandoning truth just to kind of like you know, get along with all and love all and all that kind of stuff. It, it's just like, well, I would expect Jesus to to really attack the dragon, right? To attack Satan, to to really deconstruct Babylon and go after all these things. But what we see in chapters one through five, before we get into any of that, really, is just multiple scenes of worship, and like ch the churches. Uh, the seven churches from chapters two to three, it seems like worship is the ultimate act that 
the Lord is calling forth out of repentance. Right away in chapter 1, verse 5, we get this picture of the one who loves us. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. And then we get this beautiful revelation, this revealing of the resurrected Lord. We get to see who he is in his resurrected glory. And John falls as though dead. I mean, it's just this remarkable picture as John's in a posture of worship, being caught up in greater worship. And I don't have better words to say than that. And then this calling out of the seven churches. Then chapter four, we get the throne room. And then in chapter five, we get to see a lamb as though it were slain, right? Sitting on the throne. It's just this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of worship. Now, why does that matter? And we said this past Sunday, and just kind of want to lean into it again, is that worship is ultimately what shapes us. It's what we worship is the greatest formative thing in our lives, right? Worship leads to discipleship. We, We become like who or what we follow, we give our hearts to. And in when we look at these seven churches and even with us today in our modern day Babylon, how are we to live? Like, how do we live in the world, but not of the world? And I love how revelation just kind of paints this picture saying you do it by worship, by worship in spirit and in truth, you, the affections of your heart given to Jesus, like he gets that type of devotion and you're going to fight to hang on to the truth because that is what anchors our hearts, especially in the love of Christ. But so often we look at revelation and we make it about speculation and prediction models and all sorts of things. And we fail to remember that it's about discipleship and it's about worship. Okay. I absolutely love this about revelation this is why the more i get into it the more i find this letter so compelling and so incredibly beautiful god through john wants these churches wants even churches today to learn how to worship to learn how to worship in the context of everything that is happening in our lives and around our lives and allow the way of the lamb to shape and to form us right? So that we do not conform to the ways of this world. Like Paul even says that in Romans chapter 12, one through two, our spiritual act of worship, right? Is to give our lives as a living sacrifice. No, do not be conformed to this world, but rather have your mind renewed. And so we need revelation. We need images. We need God to disclose the truth of who he is and the truth of what is true in world, in, in the world. And we can only worship what's been revealed to us. And so we need our minds to be renewed as we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to open up things, to reveal things. And praise the Lord, we have scriptures, right? And like that is God's revealed word to us. But even then, we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten those words on those pages, the word of God that's alive and active to stir us up even, even more. And so what would happen? What would happen in your life? Like what would happen in the lives of the church if we understood revelation in, in, in our reading and understanding of revelation, we end up submitting to the vision that's comprised in this letter of the world, the seen world and the unseen world. What would it do to our hearts if what we did first and foremost constantly was to stand and look at the throne of God? and to cast our crowns continually at his feet and worship him 
man, I'm telling you, it would really do a massive work in the church of Jesus Christ today. Worship is not a passive thing. Worship is always active and it always comes to some form of expression. It's not just this passive thing that you attend. No, there is action involved. There is no, um, no passivity allowed, um, especially when we start looking at some of the acts in Revelation when it comes to worship, like there's bowing down, casting crowns, encircling the throne, standing around the throne, holding palm branches, making music with instruments, proclaiming amen and crying out holy, singing, crying, laughing, weeping, all sorts of things. Worship is not passive. It's always going to be active. And that's not just true in our worship of God. Man, that's true if we worship anything, whatever it is we worship, there is there is a direct expression of that worship because it has our hearts, right? Anything we worship demands our praise and our allegiance and our loyalty, which leads itself into action. So that's why I think Revelation is a beautiful letter and specifically in the realm of how do we live faithfully in Babylon? How do we continue to purge out the ways of evil and sin and all of the seductive forces that this world is throwing at us? We do that by worshiping the lamb. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. So there were some things regarding Pergamum that we just didn't have time to really dig into. And I want to try to unpack that a little bit. And and it's not going to be too long because quite frankly, this coming Sunday, we're dealing kind of with the same issue that the church of Pergamum was facing with the church of Thyatira. And so we're going to see it. So I like, I don't really feel the burden to unpack it so much here and left unsaid because more than likely um, we're going to hit, hit it from another angle this coming Sunday. But just as a, a great um, reminder where we were, we looked at Ephesus and Ephesus was compromising um, their faith, but not in a way that Pergamum was compromising their faith. Ephesus was had internal compromise in related to their love and affection for Jesus. Pergamum, it has an internal compromise due to how the, how the truth is being distorted within their congregation. And so when we look at this, um, I'm trying to scroll through my notes again. We've got to just, just a simple reminder, this left unsaid podcast, this is not meant to be a super well polished podcast. This is just me one take sitting down chatting. In fact, the next couple of weeks, probably going forward, we're going to have, um, some folks in our discipleship, um, camp come and share with me, talk with me because they're the ones who are also digging into additional study and questions for our small group. So like next week, Pastor Chad will be with us and in a couple of weeks, Faith Hope will be with us and Michelle Haggins. And it's just going to be a great conversation of us talking through all the things that we were studying and all that kind of stuff. So if we go now to Pergamum, excuse me, God calls out their thing, the the acts that they are good for, like they they are doing well in certain areas. They they're acting according to the truth, all that kind of stuff. They're doing a lot of good stuff that's in there, but yet again, Jesus holds some things against them. Now, some fun context about Pergamum. Okay, the symbol for the city of Pergamum was the sword. 
um, Pergamum was one of the few cities that Rome had given the right of the sword. In other words, Pergamum had a right to inflict capital punishment, which is not by coincidence that the image of the Son of Man that we get in Pergamum is one um, with the sword coming out of his mouth. In fact, let me just pull up my scriptures real quick. I should have had this open right away from the beginning. So if we go to Revelation chapter 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Not coincidental. Like I said, the symbol of the city of Pergamum was the sword, and they were given the right to inflict capital punishment. Now, why do we have here the one we call the Prince of Peace kind of talking about like, man, the sword, the double-edged sword of his mouth was well, because there is a fierce battle that's happening in the city of Pergamum. Um, quoted John Stott on Sunday, and I'm going to quote again, a battle was being fought in which the soldiers were not men, but ideas. Okay. There were anti-God ideas espoused throughout the city of Pergamum and the church was planted in that very city and saving many, okay? And so there was opposition of thoughts that were happening. Pergamum prided itself on its intellect. Pergamum, the city itself, was built on a very high rock, which kind of looked like some people would say a rock throne. It had a library of great significance, 200,000 parchment scrolls. In fact, the word parchment actually comes from the title or the name Pergamum, it was enamored, absolutely enamored with thoughts, with words, with ideas, philosophy, all sorts of things. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It was the, the center. It was the center of Caesar worship. In fact, 29 BC, Pergamum sought permission to build the first temple in honor of Caesar Augustus, and Rome gave them that honor. And Escapolipios, the symbol, the snake on a rod, which was this like cult that worshipped serpents, essentially, which was kind of like almost like a forf or um, a forgery or an imitation of a little bit of what happened with the snakes biting the Israelites in the Old Testament. Go to Numbers, you could see it there. And God told Moses to put a serpent or a bronze serpent on this rod that was probably in the shape of a cross. And if they were to look to that serpent, that bronze serpent on the cross, they would be healed of their, thi or of their um, snake bite. And so here, very similar um, in an odd way. In fact, you see like our medical, um, a lot of our like hospitals and ambulance still have the very same symbol that was part of this, this um, idolatry that was happening in Pergamum. But the priests man, they use snakes actually in their healing services. In fact, William Barclay, um, a, a, a pastor theologian, he writes this, that sufferers were allowed to spend the night in dark in the darkness of the temple. And apparently in the temple, these snakes were tame. And during the night, the sufferers, they might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it slid over the ground in which he lay. And the touch of this snake was to be considered the very touch of God himself. Fascinating. Well, we know that the serpent is oftentimes a symbol of the devil. In fact, the devil took the shape of the serpent, or maybe the writer of Genesis, Moses, was just being symbolic. And even the symbol or the image of the devil in Revelation is a dragon, which is just a 
snake on steroids, for lack of better words. It's fascinating when you think about this. The serpent represents the evil one who's constantly seducing people away from the living God. Now in Pergamum, this very temple was there. Okay, not only that, on another hill, the dominant temple in Pergamum was a temple in dedication and worship to Zeus, which is the greatest of all the Greek gods. In fact, there was a phrase that would be inscribed on that, on that very temple called Zeus Soter, which is Zeus the Savior. The altar of Zeus was built on a ledge that was cut out from the hillside 800 feet above the street. So if you were in the city of Pergamum and you looked up, in the hills, what you would first see is this altar of Zeus, okay? It was uh, 20 feet high, 90 square feet. It was a big, big thing. In fact, even the feet of Zeus in that image was serpents. It was the like legs of a snake. Quite fascinating, okay? So here we are, the angel of the church of Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, I love, I love the, the nearness of God. I love the fact that we get this picture of Jesus being in the middle of his churches and even right here saying, I know where you live. Like, I know exactly what it is that you're facing. I know exactly what it is that you're going through. I know what's up against you. I know the thoughts and ideologies that are there. I know where Satan lives. His throne is not literally like, let me rephrase that. I said that wrong. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Okay. Now it's, it's not meant to be like, this is where Satan's throne is. Literally, this is more than likely a reference to the worship of Caesar. The Caesar worship because the first temple was built in Pergamum. And so it is like this is the confrontation. Caesar's kind of propping himself up as the savior of the world. In fact, we even know they were called like sons of God, Domitian. He deified his son. And like I showed you guys a few weeks ago, one of the coins of Domitian's son actually held seven stars which we saw in Revelation 1 that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars, not Caesar, not these false gods, like not at all, right? So Jesus is saying, it's like, man, this is a battle for the mind. This, this is where it is. It is thoughts in, in, because these thoughts get into the hearts and it's about worship. It's about the allegiance deep inside of our hearts, okay? They wanted you in Pergamum, and not just in Pergamum, in Ephesus, and Sardis, and Thyatira, and Smyrna, and all of the churches that are there, they wanted you to declare that Caesar is Lord. And they were fine if you if you had other deities that you would worship. They were very pluralistic. They were fine with it. But you could not make an exclusive claim, claim that Jesus alone was Lord. That would make you a danger to society. It would make you a danger to Rome. In fact, they would, at that point, they would call you a traitor worthy of capital punishment, right? And so in fact, that's what happened to John, why he's exiled on the island of Patmos, but they were fine. Go ahead, privatize your faith, do your own thing. Don't bring it into the school. Don't bring it into the business world. Don't bring it into politics. Just keep it at home. 
don't affect other people. But if you bring this Christian faith into the public square and you start saying that Jesus is Lord alone, he alone is Lord, well, guess what? Now you're an enemy of the state. And Jesus knew exactly what this meant for the church. Jesus knew the dangerous situation this would put their church in. In fact, friends, like there are people, there are believers all over this world who are facing this type of persecution today. Like today, if you were just to research um, martyrdom and Christianity and just like, again, I'm going to reference it, Sheep Amongst Wolves, the two-part documentary on YouTube, and just start to learn about what's happening in these world, in these countries that are anti-Christian and they are faithful followers of Jesus, (laughs) witnessing and staying loyal to Jesus there, giving up their lives. I mean, it is remarkable in the fact that Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the danger and the evil that is present and that's coming against you. And he's praising the church of Pergamum for their faithfulness. You're holding on to the name and you're not denying faith in him. They are maintaining their witness. In fact, their faithful witness even led to a martyr, a martyr within their own community. We don't know much about this guy. Antipas, but he was executed. He was killed for his faith. But yet, but yet, something was off in this church. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a, place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans or Nicolaitans or however you want to pronounce it. So long short of it is that in this church, there are a group of compromisers and that started to threaten and erode the health and the vitality of the church. And so there are people in the church that essentially were saying, hey, let's go along to get along. Let's not like make a big deal over some of these things. And in fact, some of the Nicolaitans, they would be like, Hey, we hold a secret knowledge that's revealed to us. In fact, they would, their antinomianism, like perfect grace type of people like, Hey, since Jesus loves us and we're saved by grace, no harm, no foul. We can just engage in sinful acts. No big deal because we are loved by God. So it doesn't matter what we do. And they would even separate the soul and the body and, and even start to say things like whatever you do in the body doesn't really affect the soul, all sorts of things. It was just trying to justify their sinful behaviors. And there were people in the church that knew that these types of um, people, this group of people who thought this were part of their fellowship were in the church and they didn't do anything to correct them, to disciple them, to bring alongside. They didn't speak truth. They just didn't want to ruffle any of the feathers. They just kind of said, okay, you do your own thing. And it's the same deal when it comes to the teaching of Balaam. I mean, again, this story is found in numbers and it's a fascinating thing. Balaam, um, the, essentially they were supposed to like, Call, call out a curse on Israel and they couldn't get, they couldn't, um, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to look at multiple things all at once. <laughs> I should, I probably shouldn't do that here. So let me, let me, let me hold to my notes instead of trying to 
freelance a little bit here, but the, the teaching of Balaam is found in Numbers 22 through 25, and specifically the part that's being highlighted is uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. The sin that was instigated by following Balaam was this. Get Israel to eat pagan food and get them to engage or to relate, use your imagination there, relate with pagan women, and that will lead to a spiritual compromise and adultery, and that will slowly cause a curse to fall on Israel by their own actions, right? And so what ended up happening eventually was what Balaam brought forward was a stumbling block. And this stumbling block was sexual immorality and idolatry, which God would say is one and the same. It is spiritual adultery, okay? And so it's just flat-out idolatry. And so here's what's happening in the Church of Pergamum. There are groups of people, and it seems like there's two different thoughts, and they're kind of one and the same in a lot of ways. Those who are following Balaam are okay. They're, this is where we're going to talk more about this on this coming Sunday. They were tolerating sexual morality. One can only guess as to what this was. More than likely, it had to do with cult prostitution because a lot of the, the, the Roman and Greek God worship was really sexual in a lot of ways. And so there had to have been like prostitution that it was there, or we could it have been even less. It could be even more. It doesn't matter, but they were tolerating that in the church. They weren't calling it out. They weren't calling it a sin. And so that began to slowly compromise in your road, hanging on to the truth. In fact, scriptures would teach us as followers of Jesus to not let a hint of sexual morality be pervasive among us. And so we in the church in the West, we could probably actually find ourselves um, unfortunately resonating with the teachings of Balaam. But there's also folks, the Nicolaitans in the church, who um, just simply tolerate sin in their own hearts or in other people. They don't want to speak the truth in love. Confession is not a practice that seems to be prevalent in the church these days. And, you know, don't want to be old-fashioned, you know. Or even the phrase this, this, this is a fun phrase. Like, well, Brandon, like these things that you're talking about, like trying to live holy and pure and you know, trying to be above reproach and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's not what it's like in the real world. Like, I find that fascinating, especially when believers say that because I'm like, well, that world is actually not the real world. That world is a imitated world from the dragon trying to lure us away from the real world, which is God. So the real world is actually kind of like walking in holiness in relationship with Jesus, you know, but there, I just kind of went on a little tangent there, but nonetheless, so I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit and just kind of lean in and just be like, you know, where, where in our lives do we tolerate sexual immorality? Okay. And, and I was having a conversation with an individual this week and because of like cultural hot topic issues like transgenderism and, you know, LGBTQ stuff, all that kind of stuff. Like we immediately go to those levels. Like we, we want to go there, but I'm like, you know what? Like 
yeah, it's easy to draw a line there. But what about the areas of sexual morality that seems to be a lot more gray and tolerated and more of a hush hush and we make more of a norm? Like, what are some of the things that we watch, movies we watch, um, books we read, music we listen to, jokes that we make? Um, what about cohabitation? You know, like I get there's some circumstances that are, you know, hard, but like, you know, are, are we engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage and all that kind of stuff? Like we tolerate a lot of things like the conversation about divorce and remarriage. Like there's so many things there that we've just kind of like, yeah, you know what? That's just, that's a little old fashioned. We don't want to be so strict, but these sexual sins, no, these are the ones. It's like, no, no, no. The compromise is way more subtle than we we realize, you know, so we need to ask ourselves, Lord, like, what do you need to stir up in our hearts? Like, where maybe have I compromised in some of these areas? It's a difficult, difficult thing. So what's this deal about eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual adultery? Well, this is actually um, a really intriguing uh, piece here and it, it paul actually talks about this at length in first corinthians um if you look at first corinthians chapter 10 you'll see him talking to the church in corinth who's saying the same thing they're like you know idols are just wood and stone there's no inherent reality so what harm is there in participating in a feast or in a meal that's dedicated to an idol right like well it's so tempting to simply say like well nothing there there isn't anything there but that's that's simply not true the truth is yes idols are made of wood and stone and yes they have no inherent reality but however there is significance to this okay so for instance the new testament or paul would respond this way that participating in one of these meals is not a neutral act remember how we said that worship is never like neutral or worship is never passive it's always some sort of like allegiance, some sort of heart, some sort of action that's moving towards it. Because in the Jewish and gentle mind in the New Testament era, eating a meal carried so much more significance than it does today. So for instance, the, the Jew would say to eat and drink at someone's table carries with it a bond of mutual loyalty. Okay. It's like um, a token of covenant and the Gentiles kind of saw it the same way. So if a meal or a festival or some sort of like feast was held in the honor of an idol or Zeus or Apollos or uh, a Caesar or whatever it, they believed that the God itself was present and that God itself was a guest. So way they thought about it back then was a bond is formed between two people when they eat together. And when a sacrificial meal is had together, they would also say that a bond would be made between the God and the one partic participating in that meal. Okay. So it wasn't just a neutral act, but buying meat that was offered to an idol in the marketplace and then going home to eat it in your own home. That's fine. But participating in a meal in honor of, uh, you know, of an idol, that's not good. That is a compromise, right? And so what would be happening is 
the Baal, Baalamites and Nicolaitans and I mean, even some folks today would be like, well, idols are nothing. There's no God in the wood or stone, like I already said. So how could we actually be forming any kind of bond with this God? Well, the meat sacrifice at the feast and later sold in the market is just meat, which Paul talks about in Corinthians. But when we eat at the table in a, in, at an idolatrous banquet or feast or meal or celebration, friends, yes, this is true. Something spiritual is happening. The idol is nothing, yes, but behind the idol, there's a presence and an authority of unseen spiritual forces. That is real, and Revelation continues to point that out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. Paul calls that unseen spiritual force, he calls them demons. What, what, like, um, what is, let me just actually pull that verse up because I was going to try to quote it off the top of my head. Something like, what do we have in common with the table of demons? Let me just see if that's what it says. Verse 20. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table in the table of demons, or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? <laughs> so I, my quote wasn't even close. Good thing I looked that up. So scriptures do not present the eating of meat offered to idols as a neutral act in the presence of a feast, a meal, a table. But if it's just in the marketplace, buying it to go home to eat, you know, that's fine. That's, that's give thanks, give God glory, right? But there's something more to it in the midst, in the presence of that act. And so it's never a neutral act. In, in fact, these feasts, these meals and these banquets, right, where they would eat, they would celebrate, they would pour libations out, they would actually make a sacrifice. And then after the meal, oh my goodness, friends, listen, they would have a party. They would drink, get intoxicated, and next thing you know, they would get a little frenzy with each other. And then sexual morality would happen. And the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans in the church of Pergamum were saying, there's nothing wrong with that. We are saved by grace. God loves us. We're his special people. We can do this. No harm, no foul, because my body is just my body. Okay. And my soul is a totally different thing. But like we said on Sunday, that is not how the Bible teaches what the body is. The body or the Greek word soma is not just physical form. It's the whole aspect of all that we are. It's our physical body and our soul, right? It's like we are a soma, which is a lot of ways how the, actually the scriptures talk about that. So when we engage in these acts, it's not just physical acts. It is our heart, mind, and soul, man. It's like, it's all of it. It's a big deal. So that's why Paul even says in Corinthians that when we sin sexually, we're actually sinning against the body, the very core of who we are. So to summarize it, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans that were being allowed to live this way and even to influence other people in the church to live this way, they would say something like this. Hey, we belong to Jesus. So then how can anything actually hurt you? You've been baptized. 
you've taken communion, nothing can ultimately affect your relationship with him. But that is a gross distortion of God's grace. Now, in fact, I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer Hoffer would call that. He calls it cheap grace, where we start to abuse it just so we can sin more and indulge in the flesh more. But that is missing the heart of love. That's missing the heart of grace. When we experience the true love of Jesus and the grace of God, we would not be compelled to sin. We would actually be compelled to hate sin and to strive for works of repentance. So that's a big deal. So this is a significant thing that the church in Pergamum, they were faithful witnesses to the point of death, but yet, but yet they didn't want to deal with conflict, conflict and confrontation within the church. They wanted to get along. So they just said, you know what? We'll let them do their thing. Things are already hard on the outside, right? But Paul just read Romans 5. Oh my goodness. Right? For instance, 521, where sin increases, grace increases, right? And so it's like 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 his argument is saying, like you say, like, should we sin so like grace may abound all the more? By no means. By no means. None. Zero. So this is a tough message to the church. But again, what's the motivation? Why does Jesus give us this message in the first place. It's because he loves us. He loves us. The double-edged sword cuts and heals. Man, it we need to be convicted. We need to be shown where we have compromised, where our hearts are given to lesser gods. We we need the Holy Spirit to do that. And if we experience his conviction, we experience that kind of brokenness and um, grief over our sin. That's the Holy Spirit leading you to life. James 4, like, man, like that is a tough, tough passage in James 4 where it starts talking about like friendship with the world is enmity or hatred towards God. And then like it's a call to repentance, weep, turn your laughter to sorrow, weep and mourn, right? Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Confess your sin, bring it into the light right? Like he will fight this battle. Jesus will fight this battle with his truth. He will come against these areas of compromise in our lives. And he promises us, he's like, listen, guys, like anyone with ears to hear, verse 17, listen to what the spirit says. I will give some of the hidden manna, like feed on him for everything. Feed on him. Don't eat the crap in this world. Like Isaiah 55, come buy bread without money, right? Like drink without money. Like and nothing else in this world will satisfy. Feast on Jesus and his word and and hang on to truth. John 8, 32. Like, you know, like the truth will set you free. If you're disciples, you will hold on to his word. Like, hang on to this. He promises us to give us hidden manna and this white stone, man. Like, it, there's so many hard, like, no one can really just say, here's what this white stone means. Because there's like nine at least nine interpretations of what it could be culturally back then could be a, a, a white stone could be the picture of being justified in a court uh, dealing with our justification but it's also a sign that two friends would do give each other's like they would ascribe their name on one half of the stone like they would take a white stone cut it in half and write their names on it and exchange it to each other while they would separate it was a promise, a vow to maintain that friendship as long as this stone lasted. And that stone was, in a sense, kind of a symbol of eternal. 
right? So if, it's kind of like this picture, like Jesus is giving us a white stone, like it's his pledge to us. Like, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Like, even in the midst, I know where you live. I know where Satan's throne is. Hang on to the truth. Fight for the truth. I got better food for you. Don't compromise. All these types of things. Why? Because he loves us. And I love the intimacy of like, and on the stone is a new name. Just a name that only you and Jesus will know. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So this, this is a good gut check of kind of a message, this letter to the Church of Pergamum. It, it's very much of a, man, we live in a culture, and he, Jesus knows what it is that we are up against. We're not up against external threat or persecution. Um, and we should be thankful for it, but we also shouldn't be ignorant that many, many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. But yet, I think we in the church, in the West, especially in America, we we face internal compromise. And I think there's a lot of us in the church where maybe we've abandoned the love we had at first out of fear of letting any kind of compromise come into the church that we became a little bit pharisaic. Um, very religious, strict moralities, trying to legislate morality. You got to do this. You got to be this, got to say this, right? All these types of things. And doctrine is good, but doctrine without love is just religion, my friends. That's legalism. And that is dangerous. But so is the other side of the coin, which is like Pergamum and Thyatira, where it's like <laughs> they loved well, or at least they convinced themselves they're loving well, they're loving other people well, they think by not speaking truth, but is is not hanging on to doctrine and, and distorting truth actually loving? You know, is it okay to let somebody go down a certain path when you know it's destructive and you're not wanting to call it out? Like the church is supposed to be a house of prayer where we come and worship God in the splendor of his holiness? Like, if we live in, live in sin and compromise over and over and we're not dealing with it and calling things into the light, we're not allowing the, the Holy Spirit use the word of God, the word that's alive and active, sharper than any double sword to pierce and cut and heal and restore our hearts. What are we doing? And so we need to be stirred up. So these are good messages for us as a church to be wrestling and chewing on. And I look forward in a way to next Sunday's message is going to be, it's going to be hard, but it's, it's good. We need to be wrestling with this as we ask ourselves the question, have we tolerated um, Jezebel in the church? And some of you are like, Whoa, this is interesting. What's Jezebel and what does that look like? And how does that play in today's culture? Well, I guess you're going to have to come Sunday to find out. Well, thanks so much for listening. Next week, it will be me and Pastor Chad talking about the Church of Thyatira and whatever was left unsaid from next week's sermon. Be blessed. Have a great week. And church, remember, we are simply about Jesus. Keep him on the forefront of your hearts and of your minds. All right, blessings. Blessings.